How's that? Is that good? A little more? A little more? A little more? Un poquito? That's good? I wish they had like um, those voice effects. Actually, you could lower it just a little tiny bit. You know, so like I could sound like different people, mm, like I'm in, in, a, in an opera and stuff. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Uh, Father, we're so thankful, Lord, that we get to celebrate every day the love of Christ and what we have, born in, what we have been born into in terms of so great a salvation. So we pray, Lord, that you may take these lips of mine, that you may take this air in my lungs, Father, and that you may form words that are honoring to your gospel. I pray, Father, that um, with the eyes we may see beyond um, you know, mere words preached or mere illustrations given, but, Father, that we may see at the heart of the gospel. Spirit, anoint our ears that we may hear from your word. Amen. So... You know, a couple of people were asking me, so, you know, Leonard, what are you going to preach on Sunday? It's the love banquet. So what was I supposed to say? Oh, I'm preaching on love, right? But, I mean, I, I kind of feel, hopefully, I mean, I, my prayer is that I'm preaching on love every Sunday, right? Uh, but today I'm probably going to take more of a, of a focus on love and defining love. I mean, it's always been a topic I've been really, really interested in, normally because our society gets it so wrong in terms of, um, you know, everything from this type of romanticism where we think of like this idea of falling in love as if you can fall out of it when you turn to the scriptures and how the scriptures present love is as a verb, as something that you do. And whenever Valentine's comes along, you always get to see these type of uh, modern interpretations of love. And one of my favorite ones is the commercials you hear on the radio for jewelers. I mean, it, it's like political season. Every, you know, when it's political season, every radio advertisement is some candidate. Well, when it gets close to Valentine's, it's about teddy bears, it's about chocolates and flowers, and it's about these jewelers. And these jewelers, they get it so wrong with these commercials. And they know exactly what to tell guys. As guys are getting close to Valentine's, you know, like, they have these commercials where these girls will come out and the girls are like, I don't want no small ring, and I don't want a small diamond. I want a big rock that, that I can afford. And, of course, every guy is just like, oh, that's the place i got to go. But they give you this impression that it's all about, you know, this big stone. And, you know, in my mind, the, the proposal ring, the wedding ring that I gave my wife was supposed to symbolize that I was going to provide for her financially. But you get this impression of, like, bling, you know. That's what, that's what women want. They want a diamond. Right? Uh, perhaps. I mean, another impression that you get is uh, one of the most bizarre ones I've seen in recent years is that four-foot-tall teddy bear. I don't know any woman who wants a four-foot-tall teddy bear. I mean, if there's any out there, please let me know. But you get all these different things. And basically, you know, if you didn't know, Valentine's Day was, was kind of like this invented uh, type holiday uh, you know, to sell more cars and stuff like that. But there is value in celebrating love. I mean, especially as it reminds us but to celebrate love as it intentionally uh, is meant to be as we see in Scripture. So then one more image that then helped me sculpt the text was when I got the email that said that I would be a host of my table. So there's this aspect of hospitality, which this church is very good at. But the aspect of hospitality and love and service kind of culminated in what we're going to preach about today. So today's central truth of the sermon is that the mark of the disciples of Christ 
his fishermen, is that we abide in Christ and love people as Christ loved us. So, I was originally going to go straight to John, but then I looked at our passage as to say, hey, this fits perfectly with what we're going to talk about today. Right? So, a quick recap with our last two sermons. We talked about Mark 1.1, specifically punctuation marks. In specific, the puncture mark. In other words, we are the marked ones of Christ, because if Christ is puncturing his crucifixion on the cross, we bear this mark as his disciples. And the gospel of Mark, those are going to be the two main themes. Jesus as the Son of God, this one who is going to come to be pierced, and us as disciples. What does a disciple look like? And then the second sermon, which was on verses 2 to 15, was about that whole mystery novel. I introduced the parentheses, and we had this like approach, like a mystery novel, you get clues, and we were looking at these clues to try to confirm who Jesus was and what his identity was. So our text for today is going to be Mark 1, verse 16 to 20, and you're going to look at that and be like, what does this have to do with love? This is not romantic at all, but you're going to see where it, where it directs us. And the central truth for that text is that Mark wrote, Mark 1, 16 to 20, in order to introduce the disciples of Jesus as those who Jesus appointed to become fishers of men. I know exactly what the women are thinking as you see this text. The most romantic thing in the Bible is fishing, right? <laughs> the guys are probably like, yes, like that's exactly what I would want for Valentine's Day. My wife, for Valentine's, for Valentine's my wife gave me an Axis and Allies board game. Yeah, that's romantic. World War II, probably not. But fishing, believe it or not, is pretty romantic. I mean, it's very, very romantic. Uh, I'm not advising you guys to take your ladies out to go fishing. It's probably not going to work. Um, but, what, but as you're going to see, in terms of being a disciple, it's all about fishing. Love is all about fishing. I mean, in a sense, it kind of is, to our modern understanding, you're trying to catch the big fish. Like that's, that's my tuna over there, right? Uh, more like, like little sardines. But, but, uh, but we're going to see that there's a big meaning here. I mean, it's not just about catching a fish about dating and courtship. So turn with me to that text. And this is what we got. Look how romantic this is. Verses 16 to 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Romantic, isn't it? You're probably wondering, where are we going to go from here, Pastor? Well, I was wondering the same thing. So I was like, well, let's see. Where is fishermen referenced? Is it referenced anywhere else in Scripture? And it was really, really interesting. I mean, I love it when I find these things. Because another reference, a prophetic reference in the Old Testament to being fishers of men was found in uh, Jeremiah chapter 16. And I'll read verse 16. Now what Jer- what's happening in Jeremiah, this chapter 16, what's happening in Jeremiah is Jeremiah is making this basically this you know, prophecy about them needing to repent. It's, it's the same pattern, repentance, and then God's promise. And around chapter 16, what Jeremiah is prophesying about is the promise of the new exodus. Remember we talked about that a lot last time? We talked about this image of the new exodus, about Jesus bringing us out of the wilderness into, the new, you know, into this exodus towards the promised land, him, Israel. Well, what we have here is he says this, this interesting little reference. Behold, I am sending 
for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. So, so what he's saying is basically, you know, when the new exodus happens, you're going to have these fishers of men. I said, okay, this is really interesting. We got this image that we've been talking about, the new exodus, and we got the fishers of men, but in specific, what that passage is about is about discipleship. Because what is the command that he gives them? What's the command? Follow me. And they follow him immediately. I mean, remember the, uh, one of the traits of Mark is he uses that word for immediately, like 40-something times? Well, he tells them to follow them so that he can make these fishermen fisher of men. And we're all called to be fishermen. And it's extremely romantic, as we're going to find. But the question is, well, what does this fishing look like? Because fishing is kind of gross. You've got, like, guts and, you know, worms and sardines. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not exactly what I mean. But what fishing looks like is discipleship. And that's what we're going to now go into into discussion. And then you're going to see this connection here with love. But what I want you guys to get from this in our passage is that before, you know, before verse 16, the big emphasis on Mark was on the Son of God, that he is the one who is fulfilling these prophecies. Remember we looked at all those different prophecies? That was kind of like our, you know, I was going to say Inspector Gadget, which kind of works too, but our Sherlock Holmes type investigation where we were saying, oh, he fits all these different portraits. Well, right after Mark talks about the Son of God as being the main thing that he's going to talk about, he introduces the disciples, specifically how they respond when he calls to them. And the rest of the book, he's going to talk about those two things. But we're going to use this piece to now bounce over and study discipleship. What does discipleship look like? In specific, you know, we talked about the puncturing mark, that we are the ones who are punctured, the followers of Christ. Well, there's also a visible mark of what a disciple looks like. So remember our story about the guy who's, who robbed the safe in, in the house, that story that I said last Sunday? Do you, does anyone remember how they would find him? He had a specific distinguishing mark. Does anyone remember what that was? What was it? His boots, he had a limp, right? And, and because he had that distinguishing mark, they were going to be able to say, aha, this is the guy who did it. I mean, at least that's how we know it, how we know it ends. But we're going to look at the distinguishing mark of those fishers of men, of those disciples. So we're going to look at this verse in John 13. I love the Gospel of John. So look at John 13, and this is verses 34 to 15. John 13 Verses 34 to 15. And this is what we have. <clears throat> a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the first word there that we want to look at is a new commandment. Trick question. Is this a new commandment? To love one another? Do we find that anywhere else in the Bible? Where do we find it? Where in the Old Testament? Yeah, Exodus is one of the places. People, you know, people see this, right? The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, you know, they go and they're surprised when they get to, like, Levitical law in Moses and find it all over the place. They're like, wait a minute. I thought the Old Testament was supposed to be about the law and then the New Testament is supposed to be about love. But in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then also in Leviticus 19.18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, 
but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Another place that's all about love is the Ten Commandments. People also call the Decalogue. Ten Laws. And the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, is all about love. The first four commandments are about vertical love, about loving God. And then the last six commandments are about loving who? Loving others. Not murdering, you know, not, not, you know, and all those other rules. So we have here, even in the Ten Commandments, it's all about love. And that's why when they ask Jesus, they're trying to trap him and say, hey, you know, what's the greatest commandment? What is, how does Jesus respond? He responds by summarizing the Ten Commandments. The love the Lord your God and your neighbor. So here we have, in the Old Testament, we already have this type of talk about love. So what is new about this commandment? What makes this a new commandment? And the hint that we see is this just as. Now, he says, to love just as he loved. And this is in John. This is before his trial, before the crucifixion. He's here with the disciples at the end of his life. And he says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So we need some context to clarify what's going on here. In specific, we need to know, well, what is the just as that he's talking about? He's obviously pointing to something that happened that's going to portray for us what that loving one another looks like. Because here's, here's, here's our concern. We have here discipleship, that last word that's in bold, and then we also have a discussion about loving. And he says in specific that they will what? That, that this type of love that's modeled after him is going to leave this mark that people are going to know them by. And they're going to know him by the mark. And what's that mark? It's where it says in verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that mark there of discipleship is that we love one another. But the only thing is that if we stay there, we still need some more context, right? We don't know what is he referring to when he says just as. But then also, what does he mean, just loving one another? Does it mean that we're supposed to give each other flowers and chocolates, which you should be doing anyways? But, you know, does it mean that you're supposed to buy them jewelry? That you're supposed to be really, really nice? Because a lot of people won't get the understanding that, oh, well, what it means to be a disciple of Christ is that you just love people. That's pretty simple. Just love them. But, I mean, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. What, you know, like, yeah, what is, what is the definition? This... This kind of points us in the right direction, but we still need to clarify this more because the Bible's message isn't just do a lot of loving things so that you can enter heaven and then you know, enjoy a, a, an infinite golf course. Right? So we're going to look at the context right before this and after this to flesh out what does he mean by just as and what is love. So while these verses are helpful, they still leave us with some questions. What does he imply when he says just as? Is the extent of being a disciple simply loving each other? And what does he mean by love? What does it look like? And for those answers, we're going to go look at the beginning of chapter 13. So John 13, go to verse 1. And this is, actually, can you go back? Um, this is the example of the mark. So we looked at, you know, the mark of discipleship is love. That's what that first uh, section of the text told, told us. The mark of disciples, the mark of the disciples of Christ is love. So second, the example, the just as we find, one of my favorite passages of all scripture. When I started here at the church and I was writing out my leadership philosophy, this was the text that has been in my life, what a leader looks like. 
And it's this beautiful, moving passage of the washing of the feet. And we're going to read it in full so that I can do it justice. So this is chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. You may not be able to read it up there, so you can listen in, or you can turn to your Bible, but we're going to read it in full. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Jesus said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share in me. So, Jesus, uh, so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This is verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. So a couple things to point out. And if you could just go back to the former text. He opens up by talking about the feast of the Passover. I first overlooked it. I overlooked that in the beginning. And then when I was coming back to the text, I said, whoa, that's probably significant. Why? What happens at the Passover? Well, at the cel- this is before the Passover feast. So this is all intentional. What John's pointing at is at the Passover feast, you got the, uh, the Paschal lamb or, or something like that, which is basically the, you, you got an unblemished young lamb, a perfect, unmarked lamb, this, this young lamb. And you went to the temple for your family and you sacrificed this unblemished lamb. So here we have him setting the scene here, almost as if he's pointing forward to what's going to happen, that you know, Passover is occurring the meaning, the real meaning of Passover is occurring right before their eyes. And in addition to that, this whole idea of, pa- of Passover is celebrating what? What does Passover celebrate? The Passover of the angel. What happened there? What was that all about? And, but, and then what, and why, was all, why was all that happening? To get them out of where? To get them out of Egypt, in other words, this is the Exodus. So again, here returns this image for us of the Exodus, of the bringing to the promised land. So we have here the Passover, which is about celebrating God's faithfulness in the Exodus. And now here we have Jesus about to celebrate Passover with them. Jesus, the unblemished lamb who when John saw him said, behold the son of God, right? the, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here we have him performing Passover. Interesting, again returns this idea here of the new exodus. 
And then we find our key word for today, which is love. He's saying here that he loved them. And how does he show his love? What does he then do? He washes their feet. So I probably mentioned this a couple times because I just think it's just fascinating. That this is something that the Jew did not do. So it was like kind of like a hospitality thing. You know, when you had guests over, you gave them a basin of water so that they could wash their feet. Why? Because they wore sandals and they walked around in the sand and they got, you know, uh, muck and stuff like that because they didn't have paved roads back then. So they came in, they had these filthy feet, and you gave them a basin so they could wash. And if you had servants, non-Jewish servants, then perhaps the servants would wash the feet for them because this was something that was beyond, in terms of purity, this was beyond any Jew of doing. So here you have the Davidic king, the Messiah, and what does the Messiah do? He washes their feet. That's why Peter says what he says. That's why Peter's like, no way, you're not going to wash my feet. Are you kidding me? I'm your disciple. You know, I should be washing your feet. But not only that, who's present there? How, how many people's feet did he wash? He washed 12 people's feet. He washed 24 feet. Right? And among them was Judas. So you've got to think here. Judas is, like all of us before Christ, an enemy of God here. We have a depiction of Judas, the betrayer. So not only loving your neighbor, but here Jesus is literally washing the feet of the man who's going to portray him to the crucifixion. Washing the feet of his enemies. And then in addition to that, this is our first major hint that it's not just about like loving each other and doing nice things for each other. However we define nice things. But he says this. Right there on the right. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And what's he saying there? Now he's not simply talking about washing feet. He's talking about some greater washing. And then the idea of the Passover returns in terms of offering up this sacrifice, sacrifice for sin. So here we have him talking about that he is going to wash them. And still they don't understand. Because then how does Peter respond to that? You know, well, if that's the case, you know, here, take my feet and my, and my hands and my head, I mean, everything. He's like, no, man, you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm going to wash you guys clean. Remember that unblemished lamb, because he is the unblemished lamb. He's going to wash them clean. But that just gives us a hint. It still doesn't fully flesh, you know, our understanding of love. But what it does contribute is the most, in my mind, one of the most beautiful depictions of humility, hospitality, and servanthood. Because one of the things that John does all throughout his gospel is he uses this term, I am. I am, I am. I am, I am. And that should automatically, every time he says I am, especially how he says it in the Greek, it's kind of like a double repetition of I am. And that should make any Jew think of, you know, Moses and the burning bush. And when Moses said, who shall I say sent me, how did God respond? Well, tell them I am who I am sent you. Which makes, like, no sense. I mean... You're taking Hebrew, you know what I mean. You get there in the Hebrew and you try to translate that thing and you cannot translate that, that word. It doesn't translate into anything because it's kind of like, I was, who I will be, who I am. That's like what it literally means. So every time John says, John, John has Jesus in these episodes saying, I am, it's because what John wants you to know is that this is the divine the Son of God. You know, this is God. And we saw that, remember we saw that in our last sermon, Jesus' divinity, because 
John the Baptist was preparing the way for Yahweh. He was supposed to be the one who prepares the way for Yahweh. And then Jesus shows up as if to say, this is Yahweh. Well, here, who is washing the feet? I mean, the I am, the God, Yahweh. I mean, the God of the universe is washing the feet of these disciples who have been getting everything wrong and, you know, who Jesus will see Peter, you know, betray him as well as all the other disciples. So the I am of the universe is washing the feet of Judas. I mean, this was something that not even a Jewish servant would do. But the God of the universe is washing the feet of all of these disciples, washing the feet of Judas, and gives us what? He gives us this example. So if you can go to the next verses. So here again, we have the I am. And then over here in verse 14, he says, you know, if I am your Lord and your teacher, and I've washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So, again, in, that, in, in the former verse, when we looked at John 13, verses uh, 34, 35, around there, what he was saying is, just as. Love each other. The world will know that you're my, you're my disciples if you love just as I loved you. And that just as has a context right before, and here we find the context, and the context is the Lord washing their feet. Absolute humility, absolute servanthood, and just a picture of divine mercy and love. But this still doesn't answer all of our questions. I mean, it helps us a lot. Now we know kind of what love looks like, right? So, so now it's just not you know, doing nice things for people. No, the bar has been sent to an infinite degree to the point where he's saying, anyone that's my follower, you got to do this because I did it. This is how you are supposed to love. And what is then the standard in this illustration? What is the standard of love? Complete and utter humility. Because no matter where you are in a relationship with another person, you are never at a point to justify not loving someone selflessly. Because here, the creator of the universe is washing the feet of Judas. So he gives us a standard, and that's helpful. Even though we can't understand it, whether rationally or emotionally, we cannot conceive of what it means for the God of the universe to incarnate you know, into the babe of Jesus in the manger, let alone to be washing their feet. But this is how he tells us that we're supposed to love. Selfless humility, selflessness. And then some people stop there. They say, okay, Jesus was an awesome role model. I mean, look how he loved. That was amazing. I just got to love people, and I got to do a lot of really, really, really super nice things. But again, if you stop there, that is not the full definition of love, specifically the gospel, which is the image of love. And to flesh that out, we look at our, fa- our final passage, which is, which is in chapter 15 of John. And again, it's the big passage, and we're going to read through it uh, just to honor it, because... I mean, I think, it's, I think it's better just to be read in full than to, than to try to summarize it, especially with one pattern that I want to point out. So again, you can read in, in your Bible with me, or you can just listen and, and listen for patterns. So this is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, and this part of the sermon is called The Result of Being Marked. So we looked at an example of, of you know, what it means to be a disciple. What was the example? What is the example for a disciple? What does the example look like for a disciple who's supposed to be known by their love? That foot washing. And then now we look at, well, what's the result of being marked? 
And that is this word friendship. Sounds very happy and fluffy, right? And this is what we find, verse 1 in chapter 15. I am, there it is again, right, intentional. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my, command, my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I can go to the next one. This is my commandment. This is verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So if you are listening, this is why one of the reasons it's really helpful you know, to hear the gospel proclaimed, to hear the word preached, is because you begin to pick up on some patterns, especially since, remember when we studied writing? How did punctuation marks start? They started to help reading out loud, because that's how people read back then. So did you hear any patterns? I sounded very repetitive. I was saying the same thing over and over again. And if you can go back, the key word is obviously what? Abide. Abide. I mean, he repeats it like ten times followed closely by bearing fruit. And I think that order is intentional. Because if we would have stopped at the last passage, if we would have stopped at the first passage, John 13, you know, uh, the, the, the two verse one and like 34, if we were to stop there, we would just get the impression, oh, we're supposed to just you know, do nice things, perhaps. And then if we would have stopped at the foot washing, we may have gotten the impression, oh, well, we got to do really, really, really nice things because look at the, the model, the standard that is Jesus. But then even in there, we kind of had this hint about the washing. And now here we can see it in full display. So he uses the illustration of a vine. So here we have a vine. And what protrudes from the vine? The branches. And if I take a branch off, will that branch grow fruit? No. So this is important. In order for the branch to bear fruit, where, does it must, where must it be? Yeah, it must abide. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, if you do really good things, if you do good works, if you produce fruit, then you can abide in me. He doesn't say that. He says that you cannot produce fruit unless you first abide in me, unless I first wash you, unless you, know, you dwell in me. And that is the gospel call when he says, follow me. He's not just saying, hey, follow me around like a, like a servant. No, he's this very personal call for them to you know, have this personal loving relationship with him. 
So this key word here, abide, is almost as if this reminder of the gospel. And even the illustration that he picks makes us, again, think of the new exodus. I mean, fruit, being fruitful, should make you think of what? Where do we find a command to be fruitful? Genesis. It's intentional. I mean, the, the creation mandate for human beings is to be fruitful. That just doesn't mean make a lot of babies, which I'm working on, right? I got two. Um, but it means to be fruitful and to you know, keep and to cultivate the earth. In other words, fill the earth. This is one of my professors. This is what he loves to, he loves to say. Fill the earth with worshipers. I mean, not just fill the earth with people, but fill the earth with worshipers and then tend it and then keep it and then take everything in creation to worship God with. So here we have a reminder of the creation mandate. We see that in bearing fruit, but then we also see this in this discussion of the vine. The early patristic fathers, they loved this illustration. They used to like take it like to an nth degree when they were talking about what you know, the new Israel would look like. They would write about like vines where each vine had a thousand branches and each branch had a thousand, you know, uh, thousand fruits and each fruit had a thousand seeds. Like they want you to think of what this prosperity, this opulence is going to look like. So here we're thinking of the creation mandate. We're thinking of the mandate that we have to be worshipers of God and to be fruitful. And he tells us that this fruitfulness, it comes by abiding in Christ. So we hear here that we see here this beautiful display of the gospel. The abiding then leads to the bearing fruit. Grace then leads to the freedom that we have to love and to worship. And one of the ways that we worship, one of the ways that we glorify God is to bear fruit. What does this fruit look like? Well, we just talked about it when we talked about love. We talked about that type of service. In other words, we become saved by the Passover lamb, and then now we become free to do good works. So today when I was uh, in the morning, I had to punish Lottie, and she did the saddest thing I ever saw in my life. I had to punish her because she was like cracking, trying to crack the phone, and I had to yell out with a real stern voice, you know, Charlotte, stop. And normally she'll cry out loud, but this time she didn't cry out loud. This time she cried in silence, and it was like the saddest thing I've ever seen. Because it's the first time I've seen this. She literally started crying. Like, I could tell that she was honestly, you know, scared, and I think it kind of has to do with the fact that, like, I'm her father figure, this source of love, and then here, because she's so grateful for that, even in this childhood innocence, to have her father figure discipline her, was just like, you know, the motivation there for good deeds is one, not of, may I earn my father's favor, but one of, may I show my father my gratitude for what he has done. And that's what we're seeing here. The bearing of fruit, the life of the disciple, is not only that the world can see this mark that we have, this mark from being crucified, this mark of gratitude, this mark of just utter you know, joy at having had our feet washed by, by the Christ. And for that, we want to go into the world and love them just so that we can show them what Christ has done. So the main thing here that just amplifies our understanding of love is that Christ loved us, as it was mentioned in one of the songs. He had loved us, right? He had came to us and freed us to fulfill that creation mandate, to free us to glorify God by bearing fruit. Because, you know, your sacrifices, the sacrifices we give now, I mean, Christ is the sacrifice. He is the Passover sacrifice. We don't have to go to a temple and make sacrifices. Our sacrifices that we now get to give to God are these sacrifices of gratitude for the salvation that we didn't earn. And we see this 
at the very end, when it goes to talk about love, so we have the Father is glorified. That this is one of the results of what Christ has done in, this, in freeing us from our sins. We have that we can now glorify the Father. But then we also have joy. Real joy. Real joy. Not just happiness, but just joy. And then, to bring it out even further, at the very end, he uses this word friendship. Which, you know, in our understanding, our understanding, you know, our idea of friendship is kind of a little bit uh, a little sober compared to like back then, like what it meant to be friends in antiquities. But when you read the Bible, I mean, you see that we're not friends of God before Christ. How does, God, how does, how, how does the Bible explain us? It calls us, in Ephesians 2, it says that we are, you know, like assistants to the, you know, the, the master of the air. In other words, we're like part of Satan's army. I mean, we are enemies of God and we're dead to our trespasses. But then by grace, by God's grace, we're freed for these good works. So, you know, we have this depiction of we were enemies, but because of the work of Christ, we can become friends with God. Here is the master, and we're not only his disciples, his servants, that we get to become his friends. So, in summary... Our four points were these. Our first point was that the disciples were what? They were fishermen. So, you know, the gospel, right? I mean, discipleship is about being fishermen, right? And, and specifically, what does our fishing look like? What does it involve? It involves the mark of discipleship. That was our second point. And the mark of discipleship is what? The mark of discipleship is what? Is love. So then we said, well, what does this love look like? Is it just doing nice things, right? And we said, well, let's, let's try to flesh that out a little bit. So when we fleshed out our, our definition of love, what we saw is, wow, it's like this you know, humility and hospitality and servant-mindedness that we see in what? The foot washing. So that was the example of the mark of a disciple is this foot washing mentality. And then finally, the result is friendship with God. So I wanted just to leave you guys with kind of like a visual because this is one of my favorite passages. And, you know, some denominations, they even do foot washing, right, as, as even one of the third ordinances. But I wanted to help leave with you guys an image of this beauty, an image of this servanthood that I think would be helpful both for how it depicts this but also how it doesn't. So, so we have this thing called the share shop at the seminary where it's awesome. If you like thrift stores, imagine like 3,000 students and the surrounding community, they just give their stuff. Like, you know, they just give their stuff to this apartment. And you can go to the apartment as a student and take whatever you need. So they have all this food that the surrounding grocery stores have. And then the students just share what they have. They just share the things, you know? So I found this thing. I thought this thing was awesome, all right? See this bad boy? You guys know what this is? You don't see many of these, right? This, this is a, a, uh, a, a nicely used shoe shiner. Anyone in the military should be familiar with shining shoes. But, I mean, in our society, this is not an image of prestige, right? I, I don't know how it is in the Philippines, but I know in a lot of Asian countries, uh, especially in India, this is usually a sign of orphans, male orphans in the street who their fathers are no longer in the family, so they have to wash, or they have to shine shoes after, after school to earn about a pound a day, about $1.50, $2 a day. 
right? So, so this, this is an image not of opulence. In our society, this is usually an image of the servant. I mean, you, whenever I see this, I think of like the businessman standing there in his suit, standing there with his newspaper, ignoring this person as this person is going there shining his shoes. And the reason why I thought this would be a good illustration is, I don't know why, but at work, I saw this guy's shoes, and they were kind of like scuffed up, and I want to ask him, like, hey, do you mind if I bring my shoe shine kit and shine your shoes? That'd probably be weird, right? <laughs> probably, but, but my intention for doing that, honestly, my intention was doing this. I just wanted to love the guy in any way that I can conceive of. Every hour of my life, I'm trying to look for people to love so that they can see that I have the mark of a disciple so then, then I can point them to Christ, right? So we have here this image of, of shoe shining, right? And it's more contemporary, because with foot washing, it's about hospitality, but it's also kind of degrading. So, so you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shine someone's shoes, and then I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to shine the whole shoes, I just, I just want to put the image in your mind. Actually, since you're right here, Lambert, you can go, you can go move your chair over here. I mean, do you, when, was the la- when was the last time, Lambert, you got your shoes shined? Uh, at the airport. You know, there's, there's, well, I usually have to shine my own shoes. See, the thing about shoe shining is, one, I don't know how to do it very well. That's why I buy this pre-made stuff. But, um, but, I, but I do learn there's like all these different steps. And it's interesting because some, some people like they spray it. But from what I understand, like I got to use this brush thing, right? In the Philippines, they teach us how to shine shoes. Oh, they do? Well, I don't, I've never been taught how to shine shoes. In school, we always have leather shoes. Well, I didn't wear no leather shoes. The reason why I got this shoe shining kit is because I'm so cheap, you know, that I want my shoes to last forever. So I don't have to buy them anymore. But, you know, here we have... I want you to picture here. Here we have the pastor, right? Your pastor. I want, I want you to see the image of shining shoes, which is nothing, right? I mean, I wish you had, I mean, you got some nice shoes, but I wish you kind of had like some, some messed up things so that I could, I could have, you know, uh, I could like bring them to life. But, but one, of the things, one of the things they do is I was actually reading like the different steps. I don't even have all the different steps. They use like, a, you know, the brush and the dirty little thing and then they shine it. But then at the end, they even like, they even breathe on it. I'm not going to spit on your shoes, man. But they breathe on it, right? So they can get this, this, nice, this nice shine in this, right? Okay, so here we have this image here of a shoe shine. But there's a problem with our image, right? And the problem with our image is that what we do get to see is we do get to see a public image here of service. I mean, I love Lambert. I love Lambert. I love everyone in here. I mean, shining shoes is nothing. It means nothing. To shine someone's shoes, I mean, that's nothing. But what you see here, my intention is that you see here just this, this, over, you know, this overflowing heart of just servant and love. But there's a problem with our illustration. So his shoes are nice and shiny now, right? But it's still something only on the outside. I mean, what's going to end up happening to his shoes in a week? They're going to get scuffed up again. They're going to need to be shined again. Sometimes they'll start falling apart, so then you have to start putting glue and stuff like that. But then even then, no matter how much I shine Lambert's feet, his, his shoes, Lambert's feet are still going to stink. No offense. No offense. Hey, you're the, one, you're the one that told me that your daughter used to run around the house saying stinky feet, stinky feet. But no matter how much I shine his shoes, his feet are still going to stink. So even with the foot washing display and in the shoe shining display, which, which may help us more because it's a little more contemporary, we still see that no matter how much I do this, I can never clean those feet. And not only that, when Lambert dies, his feet are really going to stink. 
because he's going to be decaying and bloated. But what we see in Christ when Christ says that he has to wash them is that he has to die for them. The Son of God. And in that image there of the self-sacrificial lamb, of dying for your friends, of dying for your brothers, we have the image of what our love is supposed to look like in our marriages, in our friendships, within our family, within our homes, within our professions, within our schools, and with our enemies. So if you can pray with me that the Lord, by His Spirit, may anoint us, uh, not simply to be shoe shiners, but, but Lord, that we may be you know, marks of Your grace and Your sacrifice. Father, we thank You uh, that You have saved us. Lord, we thank You that You have washed us in full. Father, that we're not uh, left to a life of having uh, to sacrifice, to make all these sacrifices for our sins, but instead, Father, because You um, have given Your Son as a sacrifice for us, his propitiation for our sins, Lord, that we may go forth and enjoy in friendship with God, that we may go forth and love people as a worship of you. Father, we thank you for this, and we pray that your mighty spirit may move us, Lord, whether it be in an email asking for nurses, Father, or whether it may be with opportunities in the colleges, or, Father, with homeless individuals who may come to us with needs. Father, we pray that we may be ever ready to show the heart of the servant, to show these, uh, these pierced hands that have rescued us, that have held us and called us beloved, Father. We pray this in the name and by the power of your Son and His Spirit. Amen.